The time has come. I like that. The time is now for Victoria Stilwell's Positively Podcast. She's a world-renowned dog trainer. Seen enough dogs today, have you? She's the host of It's Me or the Dog. I'm coming to train you. Along with co-host Holly Ferfer. You don't play around with that name, do you? I am a fan of sweaty balls. She's Victoria Stilwell, and she's ready to go. This is a lovely way to start the day. You get the busy bee. I need to trim her whiskers. I see some poo here. I feel a little bit better now because I'm the only one who usually feels stupid during the podcast. Now, let's head to the studio and get this Positively Podcast started. Well, hello. Welcome back. Good to be back. And I feel, actually, I've got over my jet lag now, which That's right. is fabulous. You were so tired because last week you had just flown back from England yes. and you were working on like three minutes of sleep. I didn't know where I was, what time <laughs> it was. And then you were such a trooper. The next day you got up and we went outside, although it was beautiful, to the Atlanta Botanical Gardens. To uh, You hosted the Rain Dog event that we talked about. The weather was amazing. And I think because it was amazing... There were about 150 dogs that uh, we judged. And, of course, Holly was a judge. And Mm -hmm. I was the MC doing some horrendous jokes. They were great. You were funny. Well, you know, some people laughed and others just sort of looked at me blankly as in, who are you? That happens Um, to me all the time. But um, it 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 was a great day. And, my gosh, the weather here in Atlanta... It's wait, beautiful. You haven't been you haven't been here this last week. No, I haven't. Been? I've Tell been me. in cold weatherland. But wait, but before we get to that, I wanted to talk about Rain Dog. In that, if people don't know what it is, everybody dressed up. Everybody, people who were very interested, dressed up their dogs um, in holiday garb, and they had different categories: best puppy, best senior, best group, and they paraded their dogs, and we judged, and they won these great, fabulous prizes, and it was such a great day. Which was your favorites? Do you recall? Yes, my favorite, and. All right. So traditionally, and I will just set it up now. Traditionally, (laughs) I am against putting clothes on dogs. Right. Okay. But let me just qualify for special occasions like this. Right. There's no problem. Right. All right. Let's all have fun and hang out. Right. The, the, The one that I thought was just so simple and so beautiful and so sweet and so funny was... I don't know, I forgot, was it best? It wasn't best puppy. It was that little Japanese chin that was dressed up as a flower in a flower pot. In a pot. pot. Yeah, she, he was, uh, yeah. And that was, that one won second place. And I don't know why that wasn't first place. That was best botanical. Best botanical. Vern Yip did it because corn dog Acopia won. Yeah, corn, oh my gosh, are you kidding? Vern Yip, who, yes. I mean, I'm a huge HGT fan, mm-hmm. HGTV fan. And of course, I love Vern Yip and I love his yeah. designs and, uh, I he was there, um, and uh, yeah, he gave he he and I thought Vern, you chose the wrong. Dog. I know, I did too. Well, what did you think of my choice? I had best senior, and the winner was uh, I can't even remember the names. It was one dog. They were like perma puppy looking dogs, but they were older than me, and I'm pretty old. They were like um, <laughs> one was like a what well, one was a Yorkie, like a, a miniature teacup Yorkie, and the other one was like a miniature pincher or chihuahua. Chihuahua and, mix. And like both of them of. were lame. Like one had a bad, one had a cataract you couldn't see or glaucoma, and then had a bad leg, and the other one had bad grill and a back bad leg. Like they couldn't barely stand. But were but... they actually? Were they dressed up? Yeah, they were dressed up. I've forgotten what were they wearing. Um, they were wearing like little holiday Christmassy looking sweaters and little hat, and you know, I mean, as much you can dress up a. You know, ancient two-pound dog. They were on their last legs, weren't they? Yes, and that's why I should never judge by seniors again. Because the whole time I said, "How old is this one? How old is this one?" The oldest one won. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Because this could 
could be their last year to yeah, enter. It could. And now they got a nice reset. Yes, but it was really nice. That was a lot of fun. And you did a great job. Thank you so much. Well, look, what I love about it is that the kids have a great time too. You know, it's always a bit weird to see all the adults dressed up. But right. the kids have a fabulous time. It's a great way to ha- have them bond with their dogs and um, so it was a wonderful, wonderful day. And yes. also I have to say my mother was a judge too. And my daughter was a judge along with, um, Vern Yip and some other Atlanta notables. And I hope they have us back next year. I think some mm-hmm. of my jokes might've been a little bit below yeah. the belt. <laughs> so I'm wondering if we do get a call next year. Fantastic. We'll yes. do it, but I don't know. You will. You will. This is the second or third year you've done this. This is the second year. This is the third year I've done this. I, I swear it's the third year. I think the first year, I don't think you were there. They didn't really have an MC the first year. Okay. I well, now, think. well, I think they're going to, I think, I think that the fact that we both MC'd it, I think they like that. So let's hope they have us back. It was a lot of fun. Okay. Anyway, and so then from there, I just came back um, from there and great fun joy. I just came back from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, State College. Um, in case you're not aware of what's going on, the scandal at Penn State University where uh, the defensive coordinator, Jerry Sandusky, is accused of child abuse, child molestation, just horrible child sexual abuse. And it's just unbelievable. You know, um, last week it was child killers this week, you know, alleged child molesters, but it was a tough story. But I will say that, um, the courthouse where the hearing was on Tuesday, the non-hearing, cause he waived his rights was in this little town called Bellefonte, Pennsylvania. And I got to tell you, it was beautiful. There's only 6,200 people in this entire town. They couldn't have been nicer. 200 journalists, 35 satellite trucks. I mean, just come in from everywhere, invade their town, and they couldn't have been nicer. And it's not a pleasant thing. And, you know, Penn State is 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 a big university. And, and Joe Paterno, who coaches the football team, and Jerry Sandusky was the defensive coordinator. They're beloved in that part of the, the, the country and the part of the state. And even though we were there to cover, some, cover something horrific, they were fantastic people. So I recommend when all this nonsense is over to actually go to Bellefonte or in that area. It's beautiful Pennsylvania, Dutch country, and drive. When we were driving back from State College to Harrisburg, we went through these tiny little towns. In the, I think it's in the Alleghenies, and it was absolutely beautiful. So it being a horrific week, that's what I like to focus on is look how pretty that little farmhouse is. But... I saw yeah. you. I saw your report actually after he, uh, Sandusky had waved his um, rights, and um, I saw your report on in session. <laughs> Thank you for That's watching. my friend Holly. You, you were great. <laughs> Thank but you. You looked very, very cold. Oh my gosh. Okay, so here's my mistake. So we're there, and we're told there's going to be a pretrial hearing on Tuesday, and because there were. Uh, eight, they were expecting anywhere from five to eight of the alleged victims to testify. This is going to take all day, possibly two days. So I thought, okay, I'm sitting in court. So I'm wearing, you know, my nice suit, my slacks. Thank goodness they were slacks. My stiletto heels that make me look oh so chic and, you know, like I'm this. And um, he waved and the whole thing was over in 35 seconds. And so we spent the entire day standing outside in 36 degree weather. I was never <laughs> so cold. And in my mind, all I could think was, at what point does frostbite set in? <laughs> Do you think I should go into and our and we the in session truck was this huge, massive production truck, so it was parked way down the hill. So um, I would try and hobble over and warm up and then come back. But, you know, it's what you do. It's what I signed up for. So And you're great at it. And uh, <laughs> what what really surprised me, and I don't know whether you can comment on this or you're allowed to comment on it, is when Sandusky came out of the courtroom, rather than his lawyer talking to the cameras, he talked to the cameras. He seems a very arrogant man. Do you think um, – and there's his wife standing by his side. Do, do, you, do you think – he takes ownership of what he's done. Uh, what 
What is going on in that man's brain? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I, he, no, he does not take ownership because he would not. Obviously, he's denying anything that happened. Um, but, you know, that's our jury system, though. Our justice system is you are innocent till proven guilty. Um, but it's interesting, you know, first of all, his attorney has been talking a lot to the media. His attorney has been very forthcoming and has made some very interesting albeit inappropriate comments, his attorney let him speak twice to the New York Times and to ESPN, where he admitted he was in the shower naked with boys. He admitted that he was attracted to young boys. And those things can be very damaging, not just in a criminal trial, but in a civil suit as well. So it doesn't surprise me that he came out and talked to the media um, because it just seems to me like it's sort of they don't believe what's going on. I don't know if it's just not the reality has set in or they feel like, you know, there is the, the, the possibility they feel like maybe they know they need to start trying this in the court of public opinion because all of the information that's come out with these alleged victims so far in the grand jury report, it's pretty damaging. So that, you know, hey, they got to start doing some uh, some some backpedaling here. They've got to do some damage control in some way. But um his attorney, you know, I, I, it, it is amazing to me what's been said, but we did, uh, I did some interviews and I got to talk to one of his attorneys and he actually gave us a little insight to Jerry Sandusky, which I thought was interesting. And he said on the way home from the courthouse that day on Tuesday, they were sitting in the back of the car. They were squished in there. It was Jerry and his wife, Dottie, and someone else. I think he was in the back seat and his uh, lead counsel, Joe Amendola, was driving, and the window kept going down next to Jerry, and he couldn't figure out what was going on. Well, his elbow was on the, you know, automatic window control, and then his wife, Dottie, had to lean over and say, Jerry, you're leaning on this, and pull it back up, and he would do it again, and he'd seem very confused. Why, you know, what is going on? And so finally, she had to say, you know what, you gotta, you better lock the, you better put this child lock on, you know, and was sort of kidding about it. But it was almost that she was used to him sort of being oblivious and a bit childlike and not knowing what's going on. And he said the next day, they, or the day before they, rather, they had gone to his house to discuss the upcoming hearing. And he was, he offered them coffee and Dottie was, had gone to the grocery store and he gets to the coffee pot and he doesn't know how to make coffee. He has no clue how to make coffee. This is a 67-year-old man, does not know how to operate the coffee pot. And he apologized profusely because Dottie wasn't there. So he offered them fudge instead. So, I mean, his attorney's telling us this, giving some insight to what kind of a person he is. You know, were they trying to lay the groundwork that he's got dementia? Is it laying the groundwork that he was just so childlike he doesn't understand? But it'll be, it remains to be seen what 12 members of the jury think of a guy who was defensive coordinator for a team that won consistently for Penn State that actually, you know, you know what I mean, that was an incredible coach. So is that consistent with a man who seems like he's bumbling, childlike, somebody who can direct football players on the field, defensive strategy, you know, it's not a, it's not a dainty sport. Is he really this innocent childlike? I don't know. It will be a very interesting trial. It's going to go to trial probably sometime. Uh, his attorneys will ask for continuances, we've already been told. So it'll probably go to trial in about a year. In about a year? Yeah. Now these things Are you can kidding drag me? On. I thought I thought it was going to be in the next couple of months. No, and I would. Sh I'm sure the defense would want to sort of prolong it as, po as long as possible. He's out on um, bail, $250,000 bail, house arrest, um, but he's not in jail. So, um, you know, they were talking about the prosecution was talking about possibly bringing this anytime after late spring, you know, summer, late summer, Good early grief. fall. But I have a feeling it'll be 
at least end of the year, if not longer. So he's in house arrest until then? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he cannot be in, in contact or in the vicinity of any children. I mean, there's parameters on him, but he's not sitting in a jail. He spent one night in jail, and apparently that was enough. What about his safety? Is anybody concerned for his safety? Not that anybody really cares, but I have to think of that issue. Interestingly enough that you bring that up because um, on Tuesday they brought him to the side of the court to an entrance and there were snipers on the roof um, overlooking his entrance and exit to make sure that nobody tried to, I guess, harm him because, you know, it's a public property. There was tons of media. There was, you know, it's very chaotic. Um, I don't know though, you know, again, he's, he's beloved in that part of town, whether they believe people believe he's guilty or innocent. Um, you know, some, certainly some crazy could show up. Um, but yeah, they did have snipers on the roof. It was a little disconcerting to watch him up there, but then again, we felt safe too. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he's under house arrest, so you won't be seeing him out and about in the community. He will be at home. I'm sure he could go to doctor's appointments and to his lawyer's office, but that's about it. He'll be at home. So I'm sure he'll be protected there. So that's going to be his life now until it comes to trial. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, you, I, I have to say your job it's fascinating. You know, it I is know it's harrowing, but yeah. <laughs> fascinating as well to be going to these places and covering these these stories, which well, are intense. I said to my photographer, do you think maybe next time we could get a story of the troops coming home? Because I would like a happy story for once. So, you know, but it is, it's an education, you know. Um, last week, doing the story on the little seven-year-old who was kidnapped and murdered, I became a little mini law enforcement expert. And this week with the Jerry Sandusky hearing, you become a little legal expert. So you learn a lot of, a lot, a little about a lot of things. It's fascinating. There's a lot to learn, but it keeps you going. Does that mean that you're going to do my holiday quiz, that you're going to be really, really good at my holiday quiz next podcast? <laughs> no, because let's just say I'm good at apparently death and destruction these days. <laughs> I would like about I welcome birth? that. Okay. I'm hoping, I'm hoping. All so right. how have you been? All well with you? Well, yeah, no, I've been having a great time. Um, I've been mom for a while, which is fantastic. It's great. And it's not what I get to do that often. Um, but I also, a couple of days ago, I gave a talk to the Homeless Pets Club. And the Homeless Pets Club oh. is set up by a wonderful veterinarian called Dr. Good. And there are about 60-plus vets clubs, um, homeless pets clubs in Atlanta now and um, Cherokee County, Fulton County, Cobb County. And what it is is that the Homeless Pets Club starts started in more disadvantaged schools. Um, and... Dr. Good was very concerned about the number of animals being euthanized in Atlanta and the, um, the metro area and wanted to allow kids to be able to become part of the um, solution. And he decided that it would be a good idea to get a group of kids together and um, get those kids to form a club. And through that club, they would be able to adopt a dog from a shelter, not actually get a dog physically into the school. But to adopt that dog from a shelter and market that dog and do everything possible that they could do to market that dog until it got a home. And then once they got that dog a home, they would adopt another dog from the same shelter. Oh. And again and again and again, so that they would be part of the solution of getting rescue animals adopted. Fantastic. So this started in one school. It's now in about 64 schools around Atlanta. Um, and 
it's growing all the time. Now there are schools in South Carolina that are interested. Uh, schools are joining all the time. And all it takes is one teacher, one teacher in each school that says, I'm going to uh, run a, a homeless pets club and I'm interested in doing this and helping out my local rescue shelter. Uh, and then there's various things that you have to do. And when they ask the kids, you know, are you interested? Half the school signs up. That's great. I mean, it's it's it is fantastic, and what it gives is it gives these a these kids something to do. Mm-hmm. It gives them self esteem that they're helping another vulnerable being. It's great to highlight the whole uh, issue of bullying mm-hmm. and how bullying, um, how kids that uh, are potentially might go down that route can actually choose another one, uh, and to to help vulnerable beings that's mm-hmm. basically what it is to help these animals get adopted and, and it makes them feel good it's raising another generation of animal lovers and people that will care for dogs and understand what homelessness is about as well yeah um, actually my dog barnsley my black and tan coonhound came from homeless pets so i'm very close to that organization I, they i i thank them for giving me my child yes um yeah i have to say you know when you meet these when you meet these kids i mean i do a lot of um talks around the schools as well with these kids. And my talk was at the Cherokee County Conference Center. And these children are just charming. Mm. And they work so hard to get these animals adopted. I also had a tour around the Cherokee County Animal Shelter too. Uh, Fantastic people who run the shelter. And it's wonderful to go and see these dogs and see the, the big signs on the kennel runs, which says... Uh, w- this dog is has been um, is being helped by the homeless pets clubs of blah 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 blah. Mm, nice. So you know that, that dog's going to get a home, right? Without a doubt, right? It's not going to be euthanized. Oh, that's fantastic. So you're saving lives. I love that. That's what I do. Oh, you had a very worthy week. Very nice. And uh, speaking of very worthy, um, we have an interview coming up. So I see our hotline is ringing with a woman named Jemima Harrison. She did an amazing documentary, very worthy, very worth seeing, called Pedigree Dogs Exposed. So shall we answer the hotline? Let's do it. The Positively Hotline is ringing. We don't know what we're going to do. We have no plan. We're just here. Who's calling in this week? He went after her like she's made out of ham. That is interesting. That's exciting. Um, is somebody going to answer that? Hello? Hotline ringing. You're on your phone, and I don't think you're taking any of this seriously. It's the phone! Ladies and Pedigree Dogs Exposed was a BBC One investigative documentary um, produced by Jemima Harrison, uh, which looked into the health and welfare issues facing pedigree dogs in the United Kingdom. And what's amazing Mm -hmm. about this documentary, Holly, is that it really, it it took Britain by storm. Hmm. And the Kennel Club, uh, which is the governing body of pedigree dogs in the United Kingdom, that runs the prestigious dog confirmation show Crufts, which is Mm -hmm. the biggest dog show in the world, was criticized for allowing breed standards, judging standards, and breeding practices to compromise the health of pedigree dogs. So I met Jemima Harrison, gosh, I think it was probably four years ago now at Crofts, um, whilst Jemima was doing uh, this documentary. And um, I think little did I know then the effect that this amazing documentary would have. So I'm very pleased to welcome Jemima Harrison onto the podcast. Hi, Jemima. Hello, Victoria. Hi. Thank you. Hi, Holly. Thank you so much for for agreeing to um, join us. We have so many questions for you. Um, First of all, I'd like to 
find out from from your perspective when we met and when I you know basically saw you doing the first documentary did you realize the effect the profound effect it was going to have on on um, the whole breed standards and breeding in Britain well I think as a filmmaker you always obviously hope to change the world just a little bit with your films and in truth, though, we didn't really know what was going to happen with pedigree dogs exposed. We hoped it would provoke change, but we weren't sure. But, of course, it has. I would say that it has provoked a lot of change, but we're now bang in the middle of making pedigree dogs exposed, too. And I think we will probably be concluding that, although there has been quite a lot of change, quite a lot more needs to be done. Yes. Um, we wh- probably just negated your last question. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. no, I know. I mean, I think change is, is pretty slow. And um, but but can you can you explain to our listeners the reason why you made this documentary? Actually, there was a very personal story as to why what triggered the documentary, and that was my flat coat, Freddie. And as you may know, flat coats are very predisposed to cancer, particularly soft tissue sarcomas. But in fact, it wasn't that Freddie died very young. It was that Freddie died incredibly old. In fact, he didn't die until he was 15 years old. And it was only after he died that I discovered how incredibly lucky I had been. And it got me thinking, and so I started to do some bit of research on the cancer in flat coats and discovered to my horror that the figures seem to indicate, well, the science indicates, that over 50% of flat coats will, on average, develop cancer by the, time, by the age of eight or nine. And that just seemed to be a complete tragedy. And if I'd lost Freddie at, at eight or nine, I would have felt so incredibly robbed. So that's what set me off. We make, I have uh, been making science films for some years now, and I have a complete passion for dogs. So, and we've combined science and dogs before. We made a film called Can Dogs Smell Cancer? And so really it was started off as an excuse to, well, maybe we could find a project here out of this that combines science and dogs again. And when I started looking and started looking at what the science was and the disconnect between the science and actually what was happening on the ground, with the breeding of dogs, I realized that we did actually have a pretty amazing story to tell. When I, as a youngster, would go to these dog shows, I would be enamored, obviously, because I love dogs um, by what I saw. But even then, when um, I was little, I would always feel really, really sorry for the German shepherds because they looked like they couldn't walk. And I couldn't understand why their backs were so slanted when other German shepherds that I knew had pretty straight backs. I couldn't understand why it seemed that the the, the German shepherds that were being shown in the show ring looked different. And they looked like their back legs were it's in some way deformed. It, it is an extraordinary fact that the show ring has changed, radically changed the shape of the German Shepherd in different ways in different parts of the world. In Germany, they have 
uh, or they have until recently been breeding a dog, a very, very angulated dog, but with almost a crack in its back to look at. It almost has a, has a corner on its back. Uh, very roached, um, severe angulation of, uh, of, of the back end. Um, I think it was a German breeder who coined the phrase, or a German critic who coined the phrase half dog, half frog. And that absolutely sums up what they look like. In America, you have a slightly different effect with German shepherds. You have a much straighter back, but more of a ski slope. Uh, but again, with the very extreme angulations and this real looseness of the connective tissue on the back end, so that the dogs are almost walking on their hocks. I looked at at the footage from Westminster, uh, from, from this year's Westminster, and was really, again, very saddened to see the dogs that were sort of flopping around the ring. They almost, to me, looked like wallabies or kangaroos. Um, and they just show, and yet the breeders think that they're doing the right thing. They're very proud of their dogs. They believe that they are doing the right thing. And when, and they honestly believe that they have improved the German Shepherd on what it used to look like, which was true to its name. Sorry about the staff in the background there. <laughs> um, the, um, which was um, that um, you know it was a herding dog, and in fact a bit more than that, it, it did it an awful lot. Sorry, I think my dogs were growling around me. Yeah, <laughs> I said them lovely. before we love this it. in the hope that they would keep quiet. No, no, it's but perfect. I have an impertinent puppy who's decided that now's the time to wind up Big Jake who's lying at feet. But anyway, so if you hear the snapping of a head off a puppy, you'll know what's happening. Yeah, Anyway, apologies. I digress. But yes, the German Shepherds are, are very sad. And I think probably the physically the most obvious cause, but a lot of a lot, the most obvious evidence that something has gone wrong, although the breeders themselves don't see it. There are an awful lot of other things that are wrong in dogs, quite often less visible. Uh, it, it, for instance, or, you know, the, the level and prevalence of genetic disease. Uh, uh, Dobermans, for instance, suffer almost, I think, the prevalence of cardiomyopathy in the breed is now over 55%. Mm-hmm. And, and that a very functional, you know, good fit-for-function looking dog, but inside they're carrying this death sentence. And Jemima, I know you're talking about pedigree dogs and, and how breeders breed these dogs, but even for those who have rescue dogs, who have mutts, who are mixed with these pedigrees, um, are you, you know, can this be sort of translated over to them? And I, I ask this saying that I just mm-hmm. spent almost $10,000 replacing both of my dog's knees. She's an American bulldog pit bull mixed. And, um, you know, when I went to the doctor and I, you know, the, the surgeon and said, did something happen? Did she have an injury? And he said, no. He said, you know, we're finding in American Bulldogs that, um, you know, their their knees are weak. And then when you add the, 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 the girth of the chest of a pit bull, it's basically, you know, no wonder that her knees, you know, the tendons have completely torn. So it seems yeah. to me that that it's not just for pedigree dogs, that this could be for, you know, rescue dogs and, and mixed mutts as well. It is. Um, just being, I mean, I, I'm often hounded for saying that purebred dogs are all desperately sick and crossbreed dogs are brimming with health. And, of course, I've never said that, and it would be a gross exaggeration to call it either way. However, the science that is out there does suggest that overall, on average, 
mixed breed dogs live longer, slightly longer, and are healthier than their purebred equivalent. However, there are some breeds that, you know, if you if you if you put together two breeds that are predisposed to a particular problem, then of course you're and, and but predisposed to the same problem, you're going to get the problem in a mutt uh, in the in the progeny. However, if you put together I don't know, a Labrador that is prone to progressive retinal atrophy, an eye problem with a breed that might also suffer from progressive retinal atrophy, but it would be due to a different gene, there are different mutations in different breeds, then the progeny will not be affected. So it really depends on the condition. On mixed problems like um, maybe slipping patellas, as, as you found, that you know there can be a problem, in um, other, uh, I'm just trying to think of other breeds that, uh, oh, uh, hip dysplasia is no receptor mm-hmm. really of, you know, it doesn't, because you're a mutt, you're not free of it. Uh, if you look at the figures for Labradors and Poodles, for instance, you'll find in the UK here that the, we measure it slightly differently to you do in the US, but they have about the same level of hip dysplasia and no great surprise that Labradoodles also have about the same rate of hip dysplasia because it's in both parent breeds. So being a mutt is no protector, but statistically, on average, they are healthier. Having said that, I've had a two-year-old mutt die of lymphoma Mm. on me, so I'm completely aware of the fact that crossbreeds, you know, there's no guarantees. You know, you mentioned the Labradoodle. What's your opinion on these new designer breeds? You talk about the Labradoodle <laughs> and, you know, all these dogs. And, and as you said, you could breed two dogs and not have a problem if they are prone to, to certain conditions. But, you know, is it sort of dangerous that we're just deciding, you know, well, we want this or we want this. So we're putting breeds together and creating, a, you know, something completely new. Um, well, I think that nature would probably approve of the process in principle. That's how nature would operate. If we threw all the dogs in a field, they wouldn't say, I'm, only, I'm a Great Dane, so I'm only mating with a Great Dane. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but uh, the truth is that a badly bred dog is a badly bred dog, whether it's purebred or mixed or crossbreeds. And there is a huge amount of really shoddy breeding out there of crossbreeds, the so-called designer dog, people out there um, out there just purely to make a fast buck. However, it doesn't really matter what they're breeding as far as I'm concerned. I think if the market is happy and can tolerate people paying $1,200, $2,000 for a Cavapoo, then more fool the market, if you see what I mean. It's always been the way that the market will, will pander to consumer demand. Um, uh, so I don't mind the crossbreeds being bred, but I want them bred responsibly. And, you, you know, there are pockets now of that happening, although nothing like enough. When when the um, show came out, the Kennel Club initially denied your assertion that many dogs suffer from diseases. Um, they stated that the vast majority of dog breeds are healthy. Um, I know that they lodged a complaint with, the, with Ofcom, the broadcasting regulator, um, claiming mm-hmm. that you... Um, gave them unfair treatment and you edited it unfairly um but what what would you say to to their response the kennel club's response to your documentary i think the kennel club found it very hard to take on board the messages from pedigree dogs exposed 
the film was a bit of a sledgehammer, um, and I think it was a huge shock to them. I should say that Ofcom cleared us of any unfairness to the Kennel Club. Um, and at no point was the accuracy of the program questioned. Ofcom judges on fairness, it doesn't judge on, on, on accuracy. So, and don't forget that after the program, three independent reports, including one by the Kennel Club, were commissioned and all, in effect, found exactly as we had done, that inbreeding and breeding for beauty had caused harm to dogs and that the people charged with ensuring that dogs were okay had not done enough to tackle the problem. So those were those... Sorry, just to interrupt you there. Those were reports by the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the Associate Parliamentary Group for Animal Welfare, and Sir Patrick Bateson, and that was funded by the KC, and the Dogs Trust, um, which for people who over here, you know, the RSPCA and the Dogs Trust uh, and and the Parliamentary Group for Animal Welfare, I mean, these these are big bodies and, and very, very trusted bodies, and they concluded that the current breeding practices were detrimental to the health uh, to, and are detrimental to the welfare of predators dogs absolutely uh, absolutely that's the case and recently the rspca confirmed uh, 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 one of the reasons that the film had such a huge impact was the cascade event a cascade of events that happened after the program of our the rspca pulling out of cross uh, the huge big dog show that we have here makes westminster look tiny it's enormous um, the world's greatest, um, big, not greatest, but biggest dog show. Um, so the RSPCA pulled out, other dog welfare charities pulled out. It also, the show lost its main sponsor in Pedigree Petrits, um, and all those generating yet more and more headlines. Um, and the RSPCA recently confirmed that they are still not going back to Cross. Mm-hmm. They don't feel that enough of the problems have been sorted to enable them to, to support to support the show. Right. I mean the BBC... And in fact actually they've completely lost their main sponsor and there is no major sponsor for this year's Crufts. No, I mean the BBC which um, had broadcast Crufts for about forty two years uh, withdrew its coverage for 2009 and chose not to re- renew it for 2010 and, and is consistently not renewing it. Is that right? No, is that still the case? That, 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 is, that is absolutely um, the case. Um, the BBC, after the programme, uh, put together a panel of experts to help it decide whether or not to continue broadcasting crops. And I wasn't privy to those discussions, so I don't know exactly what happened, but the conclusion, as you say, was that they were withdrawing from Crufts, and they have never been back since. So knowing all this information, Jemima, and knowing um, you know, what's in the documentary and now people are armed with information, what, what can people do? What should be done? What needs to be done? In, in what respect, in terms of breeding better dogs, or it, well, I think it, I think there, I think there are two answers to this. Mm-hmm. The first is that we need to establish, and then start practicing how to breed a good dog. What that entails, for me, it means thinking outside of the current box. When you've got, you know, all pugs the world over descending from the equivalent of, you know, a tiny gene pool. And that's just, that is true for, for many, many breeds. I believe that you cannot keep doing that. So we are going to have to step outside of the purity box. 
and consider some judicious outcrossing to help some of these breeds. Uh, uh, we also need to get back to what a dog is really about. You know, it isn't about a pug with an incredibly flat face that can't breed properly. If you look back at the historical pictures of those dogs, and in fact of many breeds, you see a healthier version of the breed. And I think that we need to, to, to recognize that. Um, and sorry, <laughs> I can't tell that one to shut up because he's deaf. <laughs> I'm not going to get anywhere. Um, and the second point of that, um, okay, Victoria, how do I stop the puppy no, from no, barking at right. the reflection I'm in the just, window? Oh, okay. <laughs> Can you close the curtains? We'll, we'll, do you we'll have just curtains? survive, and okay. you don't notice that I. I've just thrown something at it. We like we um, like the background music. That's we okay. Do. And it, it happens here too with my two. Just let um, you know. The, so the second point is that the consumer has an enormous role to play here. While it is going out and buying teacup chihuahuas or bulldogs that have evident respiratory problems, it is fueling the problem. And I think the consumer, uh, and, the, and so often what happens is that consumer decides that it, uh, you know, it, it goes out and buys a Sharpe that dies of, uh, at four years old. That also wasn't trained anything at the puppy. Um, um, buys a Sharpe that dies at four, four years old of Sharpe fever and then goes straight out and buys another one. And so I just think that the consumer, too, needs to realize what a dog is. It isn't an accessory. It isn't, um, you know, it is something that needs to be a dog. And to be a dog, you need to be able to breathe, see, and run, and do dog-like things. You know, um, what, what I think really got me about the, sh- the, the, the program, and I really encourage everybody to watch it, was... The Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, one of my favorite breeds, was um, shown to be in agony due to a condition that is prevalent. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Syringomelia? Syringomyelia. Syringomyelia, which is the the skull being, as I understand it, the skull is being too small for the brain. So the skull... Um, the brain is there growing. Is a mismatch. It's either there's a mismatch between brain and skull size, which squidges the back end of the brain, which ends up uh, putting pressure on the spinal cord, which causes a knock-on effects, which causes ne- neurological problems. That you're right. It is an absolute tragedy. Now the breeders never selected for that. Um, they might have contributed in selecting for a dog with that sort of short back skull and with a domed head. But of course, no one did it deliberately saying, let's do this and create a neurological problem. There are now, I don't, there are two conditions. There's, there's uh, the Chiari malformation, which leads to syringomyelia. They're linked. And it's now thought that there basically isn't a cavalier in the world without the Chiari malformation. And the latest research, we were, we were, told off for um, suggesting that the prevalence of syringomyelia was 30% of the breed. We now know from the latest papers that it's 70%. It's 70% of the breed. 7-0. Now, I should make clear that not all dogs are symptomatic. The problem is, however, that those dogs with syringomyelia, even if they are not symptomatic themselves, 
can produce puppies that are very symptomatic. Mm. So it is a massive problem, and there's a lot of thought going into that breed at the moment about whether it's morally and ethically justifiable to continue breeding dogs with such a high level of suffering. It isn't just Syringomyelia in Cavaliers. They also suffer from mitral valve disease, and at a very high rate as well. It's said that 50% of Cavaliers have a heart murmur by the age of five, and almost all of them by the age of 10. Wow. So there are some big questions to be asked about some breeds, and that is one of them. And it is a tragedy because they are the nicest breed. And I think it's a particular tragedy to hear that there are cavaliers that are biting from pain. Jemima, what can we expect from pedigree dogs exposed to that you're working on now? Well, the, uh, the film has been commissioned as a personal view film. As you can hear, I'm quite passionate about this subject. Mm-hmm. And making the first film has rather turned me into a campaigner. So the BBC couldn't really commission me as a, as, as, as a, in the way that they commissioned the first one. So, and I have never taken, I have monitored the situation incredibly closely since the first film and, uh, you know, and run uh, and for the past year or so have run a blog which gives me an excuse to ask lots of nosy questions of people in the dog breeding business. So um, the, we will be recapping what has happened since the first film, plus we'll be including some new stories. They, uh, they're going to be some good stories as well as bad stories, so <laughs> there will be a, a mixture in there. But as I said at the beginning of this, uh, it won't come to anybody's surprise that I feel that more needs to be done, particularly regarding genetic diversity in dogs. And for me, changes can't come fast enough when I see pictures of Neapolitan mastiffs so beladen with flesh that you can barely see that there's something in there. You know, they look like they're wearing some kind of monster outfit. And I don't... Uh, so you know, that can't change fast enough for me. So I'm a little impatient. I'm constantly told by the British Veterinary Association and others that, you know, time change will take time. But they've been saying that for a very long time. People have been trying to raise the alarm about purebred dogs and the breeding of them since 1962, seriously. And we are now, my maths is absolute rubbish, but I think that makes it over... 50 years. See, the bottom line, isn't it? The bottom line of this is that really, obviously, these dogs are being bred for the way that humans want them to look. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an absolutely, I mean, dog showing, uh, uh, there's, there's an aspect of dog showing that I like, which is mm-hmm. celebrating a breed, bettering a breed, being passionate about this breed of dog. And there's the element of dog showing that I don't like, which is, mm-hmm. Um, where the animal suffers as a result, A, because um, physically it's bred to look a certain way or it's taken to a dog show and hates being in these crowded areas and hates being manhandled and hates being groomed for hours and hours or like the poor Shih Tzu lives in a crate its whole life at home because the, the, the breeder doesn't want the hair to be damaged so the hair is perfect during a show. I mean, though that's the part of showing that I despise. I mean, I've been to crowd um, we filmed at Crufts. I love Crufts in so many ways because it 
it, it has so many of the, the positive sides of having a dog with the agility and the dog sports and, mm. and um, stuff for kids and uh, celebrating the dog and rescue. And But, but um, I'm with you, Jemima, completely 100%. And uh, it was really interesting because... Uh, Holly, I met Jemima a couple of weeks ago. We went to uh, an update meeting um, with uh, the Associate Parliamentary Group for Animal Welfare. And there was the RSPCA there and um, the veterinary associations. And, and it was really interesting to hear the progress that was being made. And I was sitting next to Jemima. And I think both of us thought, well, you know, this is all very well. And a round of applause for everybody. But seriously, this this is the tip of the iceberg and uh, you know I don't think that we can come away from this meeting and go jolly good work well done uh, without thinking you know no we've got to do better these people have got to do better and I think Jemima your role is almost staying on their backs making sure that they will and the kennel club weren't there well the kennel club decided to not turn up at the meeting because we were filming um, and obviously that's completely their choice. I think it was a mistake, personally, that they didn't turn up. I think it was a huge mistake. I think, again, it shows the Kennel Club not taking responsibility. I think, you know, that they're the ones that are responsible for uh, a, a lot of, well, obviously, setting the breed standards and allowing and celebrating the, the winners of um, best of breed and best in show, uh, so many of these compromised dogs. I think they're the ones that should have should have been there, and I think they do themselves a huge disservice by not being. But um, I, just, I just want to sort of, as a passionate dog lover and trainer, um, issue my support for what you're doing, Jemima. And I think, you know, you, you've got to stay on their backs because I think only with that and the show that you have done is there going to be change. And, yes, there's going to be a lot of the old boys club that don't like it. But you know what now? This is 2011. It's soon to be 2012. And there has to be change. And there has to be change as fast as possible. Well, there really has to be change in America to Victoria, which is you know, obviously where you're calling me from. And uh, Harley, you must think, looking at you know, the changes that have taken place in America, that, it, that, that in the UK compared to what the AKC has done, it's completely revolutionary. <laughs> you know, the amount of changes to the breed standards and everything, I often forget about that. But it's not really that the Kennel Club here has made, you know, enormous big leaps they have done some good things undoubtedly they need to do a huge amount more it's that the AKC has done very little yeah no I agree with you 100% and I think that it's something that we we seem shocked with when all of a sudden you know we hear stories about you know dogs or pit bulls or I mean anything that has to do animal related and people sort of are shocked by it because nobody really has paid attention. Nobody really cares, and they need to become active here in this country. And, you know, hopefully people will look to, to what Britain's doing, and, and, and that'll take the lead. And maybe once things start moving forward there, somebody here at the AKC, somebody here will step up and say, hey, I mean, same thing. You have Crafts, we have Westminster. And it's the same it's the same issue. But again, there's a sort of, there's a huge, people don't don't really know. And I remember um, I wrote an article regarding the British Bulldog and how compromised physically and uh, compromised this poor dog was, um, this breed of dog um, was. And um, I was uh, verbally a attacked.
attacked in many, many ways and in many instances, especially by one of the uh, bulldog breeders that said, how dare you, you want to kill the breed. And, uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't believe that this supposed lover of the breed could, could say, I wanted to kill the breed because I wanted to make the breed physically and mentally feel better Well, and, and, and be better. And I think part of that too, and I, I'm sure you would agree, Jemima, it comes down to money. I mean, this is a big money industry. You can, you know, some of these breeders are charging two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 for certain bloodlines and dogs. Here in Georgia, we have um, the University of Georgia and their mascot is Uga, which is the bulldog. And if yep. you want a dog related from that bloodline, the minimum you will pay is $3,000. If you were to find an all-white one, forget it. You can empty your bank account. And I think a lot of it comes down to money, and I think that's the big problem. Aga died, didn't he? The, the new Aga died at about two years old, yes, or was it was, even less than that? He was very young. Well, very I was going to say, it's, it's not just the $2,000 for the first one. It's for the second one two years later and the third mm. one two mm-hmm. years after that. Um, <clears throat> I don't actually, I don't, obviously money drives some of it. But I've done a lot of thinking about this, and I think that people have received a lot of self-validation from their show wins. And to have an outsider or outsiders come in and say what you're doing is wrong is completely alien to them. And they are, it's the old adage, you know, you cannot see the wood for them. People that are really tight in bulldogs or Neapolitan mastiffs or Sharpays or peaks or pugs or whatever, they honestly are totally insulted when you say that they are breeding unhealthy dogs. They don't see that they are. I had someone, uh, actually the world's brachycephalic expert, say to me in Leipzig in, in Germany um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, he was saying that some breeders of pugs tell their breed, tell their pet owners, that noise that you can hear is the dog purring. Purring? Purring. purring. Like a cat. <laughs> Rather than gasping. Unbelievable. Um, so, but I think that it, what it comes down to, so I say that money drives some of it, and I think particularly, you know, America, perhaps dogs are bigger business. I think that most breeders here, unless they're very successful, don't make a huge amount of money out of it. But... The problem is breed blindness. You speak to a bulldog person and they'll tell you the bulldogs are fine, but the German shepherds are dreadful. If you talk to a pug person, they'll tell you that the pugs are fine, but the bulldogs are dreadful. You know, they they just don't see it within their own breed. Well, and, and it- they end up normalizing things that, you know, someone said to me that if uh, a vet said to me that if a golden retriever presented within the respiratory distress and the, you know, the state of hypoxia, oxygen starvation, that some of these brachycephalic dogs live their entire lives uh, enduring, you'd put them to sleep. And you, you know, th- you think there was something horrifically wrong. I think, Jemima, yeah, what you mentioned, you know, it, it, a lot of people are vested in, you know, the, 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 the success of their dog or the look of their dog. I mean, we have this problem here in the United States with children even. You know, we've had, there's been a lot of controversy here with these parents putting young kids in beauty pageants and dressing them up. And I think it's that mentality. And I think until the mentality changes and people, you know, can be self-aware that, you know, hopefully your documentaries like Pedigree Dogs Exposed and the new one that you're going to do will help 
uh, shed some light on all of that and, and educate people to know the difference and to know what is right and wrong. When can we expect pedigree dogs exposed to to come out? Well, well it's a very, very closely guarded secret. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> we'll, check. We are delivering, no, well, I can tell you that we are delivering the film on the 9th of February. So it could be shown any time after that. Right. Uh, and actually, I don't know when it's going to be shown. I have not been given a transmission date yet. Well, okay. we'll make sure that everybody here knows about it. Thank you, Jemima. It was such Thank a pleasure you. talking with you. Uh, absolutely. F- absolutely fascinating. And good luck with your quest. I know that you you are an uh, absolute passionate dog person and you are really helping to to change so much of, of the dog world. And I know it's not hard, and I know you've come under a lot of attack, but the reason mm-hmm. why I, I feel like you you are you should be commended is because you don't stop, and that's what it's all about. It's about battling for these vulnerable beings that can't speak for themselves. So thank you for everything you're doing, Jemima, and good luck. Well, it's a pleasure, and thank you, Victoria. Hey, Victoria! Give me a fascinating furry fact. The aggressive bark is... Uh, thanks for that, I guess. I know what you're thinking. Crazy people. Crazy dogs. Did you provoke her? What did you do? Did you pinch her or something? Got anything else? Dogs have twice as many muscles for moving their ears as people. Really? Twice as many muscles in their ear. And in fact, dogs with pricked ears can hear... You mean the ones that stand up? The ones that stand up. Can hear better than the ones with flop ears, because obviously flop ears kind of block sound. So that's what I'm thinking about. Barnsley. My dog with the... Didn't we talk about this? Yeah, I think you're right. I think we did. Didn't we have this whole ear thing before? Well, we didn't say how many muscles are in there. I just told you he thought he was stupid and you thought maybe he couldn't hear. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the, the muscles make those ears mobile so that they can uh, literally, they're like satellite dishes yes. on the side of a dog's head. Very they cool. They can move around. Your daughter Alex is so smart. She's very smart. She knows much more than I do. That was her, by the way, uh, giving us that information. And by the way, I understand that Alex wants to sing our podcast. I think we should have her on. Yes, she does want to sing. So we're going to have a special uh, holiday podcast Oh, okay. next week. Are yep. you going to sing too? We are. We'll see. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, um, let's get to Ask Victoria because I know there's people with questions. So, shall we? Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Hey, you got something on your mind? What are you, a wizard, a genius? How do they make a miniature? I mean, is there some way, some process they they physically miniaturize the dog or is it a puppy or what, what the devil is going on? That's a really good question. I've got my work cut out for me here. Next time you want to know something, can you repeat the yes. question? Why don't you ask Victoria? She's the expert with this kind of stuff, you know. Uh, you obviously don't dog. know my dog. Just, Just ask Victoria. All right. First question to you, Victoria, comes from Marianne in Texas, and she says, Hi, Holly and Victoria. Just wondering if Victoria took Jasmine as her hand carry luggage when she went to New York. If so, do you have any doggy air travel tips, or could you talk about your experience flying with her? My family's been considering taking our pug with us on some upcoming trips. I've read multiple airlines pet policy, and some even have videos demonstrating the process, but they were made before the new TSA airport security changes. Thanks for all y'all do. That's from Marianne. And that's, you know, a good question since we're coming up to the holidays. A lot of people will be traveling. You know what? I I knew this is going to be Jasmine's first time on a plane. I mean, this is a Jasmine spent her first six months of her life, as far as we know, in a crate. Mm Mm-hmm. 
she didn't she hadn't really seen a car when I adopted her at six months old. Aww. She was terrified of everything. So I had to introduce her to everything. And she made huge progress. And then yeah. here I am. I'm going to have to take her to New York City. And I have an apartment in Midtown Manhattan. Mm. And not only is this dog going to have to put up with being in New York City, having seen very few cars in her life, she's also going to have to go on a plane. Mm. And I thought, you know, I either panic or I remain calm. <laughs> so and I you remain calm. Good. <laughs> good to know. I think that was the biggest piece of advice if I could give that to anybody's remain calm yourself, because of course you are going to be a little bit nervous, but I wanted to be calm for her because I knew that the experience for her would freak her out. Mm -hmm. And so I, she loves her carrying case anyway. And I made sure that she, she saw her carrying cases home. So in it, I put her bed and a pad because I didn't know when the next time I would be allowed to take her out because of course once you're in the airport and you're in the plane you are not allowed to take them out mm -hmm. and uh, I knew that if she needed to go then I would have to put I uh, have to have a pad in her carrying case for her so I had her bed there so those familiar smells of home I'd already desensitized her to the carrying case and made it a den like space for her so she was used to going in and out so that was my pre-preparation that I the preparation that I had done before mm -hmm. even um, taking her to the airport and I did that for a couple of weeks just having the carrying case on the floor with her bed inside so she would go in and out with the door open mm -hmm. then gradually I would shut the door for a little bit put her favorite chew in there her favorite treat her favorite toy in there so she got really used to being in there she was comfortable then I'd start carrying it around with me mm. just carrying it around so she got used to that feeling of walking with me and that kind of weird thing that I was carrying her and that there was going to be a bit of movement. And then I would put it in the car so she'd get used to being in the car. So I did all this pre-preparation stuff. Not a lot of it, but just, just, just a little so that mm -hmm. she would get the idea. Then I took a deep breath and going mm -hmm. through TSA was, was no problem. And of course, everyone sees this little chihuahua mm -hmm. and they're like, oh my God, <laughs> she's so cute. So I knew that lots of people would come up to her. And, of course, I work very hard with desensitizing her to the approach of hands and the approach mm -hmm. of faces. And I give her lots of praise when that happens. And so people coming up to her is a good thing and not a bad thing. But, obviously, a lot of strangers looking at her, she was still pretty fearful. We got on the plane very successfully. And um, I put her underneath the seat in front of me. I put my fingers down in front of her. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, she pretty much went to sleep. Wow. And I think so, with a lot of dogs, it's actually the motion, motion of the plane mm -hmm. once they get up and it's that constant noise and that they do relax. And, and she did. I was fortunate that she did. I'd exercised her really well in the morning. I think that's another important tip is really exercise the dog before you take it on the flight so that they're tired. Mm -hmm. Because if they, if you don't have time to exercise, which of course, if you're leaving very early in the morning or not, then the dog's still going to be hyped up. So that exercise really helped. And then, of course, arriving in New York City, that was my big deal. So the mm. flight itself was actually really, really <laughs> easy. And then we had to take her out of the airport. She did nothing in her in her carry bag. She hadn't gone to the toilet. And this had, gosh, been about three, four hours she'd been in there. Wow. So then when we came out of LaGuardia, we had to find a green patch. Try and find a green patch in Queens. <laughs> oh, my God. Outside the airport. There right, is none. Right. And whatever there is, it's full of trash. Mm. Anyway, so we got her to this green patch. You could call it green. Greenish. Greenish. 
took her out and it took her about I think half an hour to actually go potty because it was just it was a new environment mm-hmm. a lot of smells but she coped very well Good. So and that's I would, some good advice. Yeah, and yeah. Do, you know, a lot of do, people say, do you use medication? I don't want to go against the advice of your own veterinarian, but I have heard and uh, and I agree with that medication is not a great idea. Mm-hmm. So if you can just use it, if you want to put a, lav- a bit of lavender in your dog's carrying crate or some kind of smell that will relax them, use that instead. But um, yeah, maybe keep away from the medication. Okay. There we go. Good advice. All right. Let's take another question. This one is from Debbie Geiger in Incline Village, Nevada. She's got two Briards. One is 10 and the other's four. She says, I adore them. But when we drive in the car, they love it. They both go bonkers and bark at anyone walking their dog. Sometimes they think they see dogs that aren't there. I got really scared sometimes that they will jump on my lap. The little one sits in the front seat and the other is in the back. Please help me. Put them both in the back with a secured with a doggy seatbelt. If you have an accident, those dogs are going to go through that windscreen. Mm-hmm. Hopefully they don't take your head off on the way out. But I think there was um, a study done, a uh, 40-50 pound Labrador coming through the windscreen. Uh, if you have an accident at 30 miles an hour, a 40-50 pound dog will go through the windscreen with the force of a baby elephant. Wow. So it will take your head off on the way out. Wow. Secure your dog in the back seat, both your dogs in the back seat with good secure harnesses. Or there are little dog dog um, beds that you can buy that have harnesses in them mm-hmm. that the dog can be comfortable in. Or you can have two crates at the back there. You can cover the crates. Don't cover them completely so they're still at good airflow. But you can have these crates in the back um, car as well, back of the car. It's all to do with safety. And then, of course, if you cover the crates, the dogs can't see outside. So there's going to be none of that visual stimulation, which causes the barking. Mm-hmm. Don't have your dog in the front seat. You know, you're just asking for trouble. Could cause an accident, too. I mean, if they jump in your lap or get even down by your feet, it can be pretty scary. I the amount imagine. of dogs and clients that I've had that have had dogs that do that. Mm-hmm. And the very simple solution of just having a doggy seatbelt. It's just safety for everybody. I had a dog once that hurled himself from the back of the car who I thought was secured into the front and actually changed the gear on my car on the highway. It was it was pretty scary. Thank goodness he only put it in neutral, so I was able to get it back and drive, and it was an automatic. It wasn't a manual. But that could have been disastrous. If he had put it in reverse, my, I could have gotten rear-ended. I mean, so I totally understand that secure. Make sure the security is secure. <laughs> that happened to me. All right. Good, uh, good questions. And I know we've had um, with our interview, a fantastic interview with Jemima, we've running long. So let's just say if you want to find out more about anything about Victoria, go to podcast at positively.com. You can email questions there. You can also check out what Victoria's doing. Follow her on Twitter, twitter.com slash it's me or the dog or Facebook page, Facebook like her or uh, friend her at facebook.com slash Victoria Stillwell. And I do read them all. People say, do you read your Facebook, uh, the yeah. Facebook comments? I read them all, every single one. I know you do. And actually, you also, to Twitter, you respond really quickly to Twitter. Yeah. You're on that thing all the time. I, I, I love it. Social media. So next week is our big holiday show yes, where not only is. maybe will Vic and Alex sing, but we have a special, special surprise guest. Oh, I cannot wait for I this know. I'm so excited, <laughs> too. So we'll leave it there. Until then, we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Victoria Stillwell's Positively Podcast. For more information, visit Positively.com. Get connected on Facebook. 
as Victoria Stillwell, or follow her on Twitter at It's Me or the Dog. This Positively Podcast has been brought to you by Pets Ad Life, who encourage you to get a pal for your pet. Visit PetsAdLife.org or the Pets Ad Life Facebook page to learn more. Be sure to tune in next time as Victoria helps to change dogs' lives positively. 